Lord, I pray this morning as we come before You that You would open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive from Your Word. God, as we look at some of the very basics of what it means to call ourselves believers in God, to say that we believe the Bible to be true, Lord, I pray that You would take these essentials and that You would instill them within our hearts and within our minds. Lord, as we join hands with believers throughout the last 2,000 years who've trusted You as Savior and as Lord, who have called out to You for salvation, and some of which have been willing to suffer and even sacrifice their very lives for their faith, I pray, Father, that we would recognize the magnitude of what You have afforded to us. So, Lord, if there's one here who does not know You today, I pray that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit. If there are those who simply have made a cognitive belief or a cognitive recognition of the faith, I pray, Lord, that You would give them understanding and that You would give them relationship through the person of Jesus Christ this day. And we will give You the praise and the glory as we look at the basics of our faith. In Your name I pray. Amen. What are the basics of the faith? As we look at this series we're going to do this week and next week, basic training. And these are terms that I believe every Christian should know and understand. Everyone who calls himself a believer. Uh, reminds me of a story I read this week uh, of a gentleman who, uh, an older gentleman who had received 31 uh, traffic tickets for not wearing his seatbelt. And so I'm, I'm not sure if he was just waving it and in front of every police officer. I don't know how he got 31. But what uh, the sad part about it is on July 3rd, uh, he had an accident, and he went through the windshield and was, was killed. And when the coroner did the report, he found this, that this gentleman had taken a uh, leather strap, a seat belt, and he had attached it up to the top uh, of where his other seat belt was and would, and would simply placed it over his body but didn't snap it. It was just one that would just hang there and give the appearance that he was actually wearing a seatbelt, but in reality, there was no power there within. Matter of fact, it cost him his life. He possessed the power and he possessed the tool, so to speak, that would have saved his life, but he chose simply to give an appearance of safety, an appearance of something that might save his life. But in the reality and in truth, it was merely a picture. It was merely a show. It was merely just an image. Today, if we're not cautious, many simply say, I believe Jesus. I believe there's a God. And we make an acknowledgement. But the question comes to us, have we ever trusted Christ with our lives? Have we ever received Him? And if we have received Him, Can we communicate the basics of what we believe? I believe that that's just a simple reality of truth that God expects from us, that we might be able to communicate the very basics of the faith. And so today, we're going to look at the first three. And they're pretty simple when we look at them from an outside perspective. But the reality of it is, many of us may struggle a little bit to communicate exactly what we believe. So I want us to do that today. 
Uh, and you have some notes that will, uh, you can look at, an outline that you can look at later. But if you have your Bibles, let's start with Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. We just finished a series on apologetics, and this is actually a message uh, of what you would be defending, what it is that we would defend, and we would actually need to start right here. In Revelation 4, chapter 11, the first subject that we're going to look at is that of God. Who is God, and what do we believe is true about God? Who do we believe that He actually is, other than just a nebulous figure that is floating in space? What do we believe? Well, let's start right here with chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and your will they were created. And by your will they were all created and have their being. One more time. You are worthy. You are one who is worthy of worship, worthy of glory and honor, to receive the glory and honor and power. You, O Lord our God. For You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. Doxa, the doxology that sometimes we sing to bring glory. What is the chief purpose of man? Well, the Westminster Confession says it in this manner. It is to bring glory to God. I would give you a simple answer myself. It's this, that our chief purpose, once we have received Christ, call ourselves believers, is to bring glory to God and hopefully enjoy it as much as possible. All right, John Piper wrote an excellent book called Christian Hedonism. And we all kind of know what hedonism is. That's just doing whatever brings you pleasure, whatever makes you feel good at the moment. And John Piper argues from the point that if we truly trust Christ, if we truly embrace God as we glorify Him, it is the chief purpose for which we were created and we will find maximum fulfillment. Does that mean everything will be like we want it and we get everything we want? No. God always puts a premium on purpose over pleasure. And I think that's important for us to recognize. So as we begin this process, it's important to recognize why we exist and that God is holy, that God is perfect, that God is glory itself. Secondly, that God is omnipotent. That big word that we've used before, what does omnipotent mean? It means all-powerful. The Bible tells us in Job's, Job chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. In Genesis 18:14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Matthew 19:26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is is all-powerful. Not only is He all-powerful, but He is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. The Bible tells us He is omniscient. First John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Then this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we have set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Job 37, 16. Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of Him who is perfect in knowledge. Psalms 147.5 Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere keeping watch over the wicked. 
and the good. God is omnipresent. He is in all places at all times, the Bible tells us. Psalms 139.7 Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I go up to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in the depths, You are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jeremiah 22.23 Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see Him, declares the Lord. Do I not feel the heavens and the earth? Not only is God omnipotent, omniscient, not only God is omnipresent, but He is also love. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, uh, verse four, chapter 4, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is. Is love. In 1 John 4, 7, the Bible tells us, Dear friends, love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. John 3, 16, how does it start? Someone tell me. For God so loved the world. God is love. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, Scripture only uses the word agape when it makes reference to God in the New Testament. Now, the word agape is actually the love that we see described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many times uh, when you get married, matter of fact, if I ask you how many of you when you got married use 1 Corinthians 13, about half of you use that passage, even if you weren't paying attention. Uh, but, but, you know, your minister probably read that passage. It's speaking of agape love. It's a pure love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that God offers to us in spite of who we are, in spite of what we could ever hope to accomplish, or in spite of anything that we could ever do, God is the definition of love. And then our next one, God is the Trinity. The Trinity. Now, this is a difficult one for many people. And if you have your little note card, let's look at this. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. And I know it's still difficult, but I think it merits us at least taking a moment to look at this for just a moment. You see the little diagram that's inside your bulletin there? Uh, many times people will get confused and they'll say, uh, and this is okay, this is not a, a big no-no and you're in trouble, but sometimes people will say, God and Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. Well, in reality, God is Jesus. God is the Father. God is the Holy Spirit. See how the drawing is right here? And again, this is a difficult doctrine and a difficult position for, for us to understand. But when I say God, I mean the Father. When I say God, I mean the Spirit. And when I say God, I mean Son, the person of Jesus Christ. So anytime I make reference to one of those, I'm making reference to God. Now, this is important because a lot of times cults begin right here where they make a difference, where they'll say, well, there's God... But then there's Jesus. And Jesus isn't necessarily God. He's, he's His Son, but he, He's not God. He's not a deity. He's not divine. But the very essence of what we believe as Christians is that God became flesh and came and dwelt among us. Now, also though, it would be not true to say... By the way, this screen's a little uh, dimmer. We've got to change our bulb this morning uh, in case you're wondering. Uh, so if you want to look at that screen, you're welcome to. In case, unless, of course, you can't see that screen. Uh, the Father is not Jesus, okay? They're different uh, in their essence. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. 
But when we say God collectively, we're making reference to the three. Okay? Now, again, I know that's not uh, easy to ascertain, but it is the truth of, of Scripture. And so it's a good little drawing. That's, By the way, that thing's probably about 300 years old, that drawing. I don't, I don't even know where it came from. It came from early church history. And you see different forms floating around, so that's why we don't have a little... Um, copyright. Whoever's copyrighted that, they're lying. They didn't write it, okay? So, uh, nevertheless, uh, as we continue, we see that God is three in one. We even see that reference used in the plural form even in Genesis chapter 1. As we continue, the second basic aspect of our faith that is imperative that we understand is that of Scripture. Again, we've talked about this the last few weeks, the importance of Scripture, uh, the, the the infallibility of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. The Bible tells us in Second Peter, verse one, verse twenty and twenty-one: No Scripture is of private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, what do we believe? We believe that men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit, and God came upon them in such a manner that they were able to transmit the very Word of God onto paper, on, into writing. And so that's how it occurred. That's how it happened. Sometimes God used different methods. We have times in which God spoke audibly to Moses. Sometimes, like in Abraham's instance, he was put into a trance, and God revealed this all to him. And so that's what we believe about how we got the Scriptures. And then, of course, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came about in the New Testament. And uh, the Gospels, of course, are a recording of the life of Christ, of God in the flesh. So we believe the Scriptures to be inspired, but we also believe them to be infallible. There's that word again, infallible. Uh, I want to remind you that I'm fallible, just as you are fallible. Sometimes we misinterpret things from Scripture. I've told you this before. This is so encouraging to hear. 20% of my theology is wrong. I just don't know what 20% it is or I'd correct it, okay? But some of you have 40%, so I don't feel that bad, all right? And uh, we we grew up sometimes hearing things. You know, I've told you this before. My mom said, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the Bible. Get in there and clean your room. And charity begins at home. And then I find out none of these things are in the Bible. But she said later on, well, they should be. And and, uh, and so you kind of grow up with this mentality that this is all Scripture. But uh, the real truth of it is, is I believe the Bible to be completely infallible, without error. But sometimes we misinterpret. Sometimes we make say, and, and what's worse, sometimes we don't even really try. We just kind of think, well, this seems right to me. I think this is the way it should be. And then we find our culture in a complete mess. Just as it happened in the Old Testament, every man, Old Testament, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then you see the destruction of the nation of Israel soon to follow, which will be the truth for us if we do not stand firm upon the basics of faith and the infallible Word of God Almighty. We believe it to be infallible because the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord has spoken. In Jeremiah chapter 10, hear the, Lord, hear the Word which the Lord speak. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came expression. In Hosea chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came. Jonah chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came to Jonah. Micah chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came to Micah. Zechariah chapter 1, the Word of the Lord came to Zechariah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, the thing I write are the commands of the Lord, says Paul. 1 Thessalonians 4.15, we say by the Word of the Lord. And 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit 
expressly says the Word of God, the infallible Word of God given to us. Then we see also the law. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that there's the law and then there's the principle of law, which we want to be mature about and be guided by. But the law still performs even a function today. The first function that it performs for us is the mirror function. What does that mean, the mirror function? Well, yesterday I was playing with my son and I got really dirty. So when I go and I look in the mirror, I can see dirt on my face. Okay, Now that mirror does not make me clean just because I notice it. I had to take water and wash my skin and wash the dirt from my skin. So the law is the mirror. The gospel is the water that cleanses us. So it's not merely enough that we recognize what the truth is and that we see it, but that we must receive the grace and forgiveness of Christ. So the law operates as a mirror function. Secondly, it operates as a civil function. Uh, even in a nation and even in countries that don't recognize Christ, God has enabled us to, and for most societies, to understand the truth of His laws and laws that permeate uh, many cultures that operate as a restraint to evil and a restraint from what ultimately could be our doom. The law restrains evil to a degree. And then thirdly, the guide function. It gives us a yardstick. It shows us areas that we need to work on and it shows us how we are doing. Next is prophecy. Prophecy, the understanding of prophecy in Scripture. Now, when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about really three settings. When prophets spoke, and by the way, just so you know, if you look at Deuteronomy 18, and I believe I have that listed for you, uh, the Bible says right there that the criteria for a prophet is that he's always right. If he ever speaks to the Lord and he's ever wrong, then that man is not a prophet of God. So anybody that you hear today that says they're a prophet, and if they ever get anything wrong, they're full of junk. Okay, that's probably a nice way to pull it. All right, so prophets don't get it wrong. And I believe that prophets from which the Scripture was spoken of here today were, uh, were already given and were given in ancient times. Uh, today somebody might have a gift of prophecy, so to speak, but they would not be a prophet according to Scripture. Okay, so with that said, and that's my personal belief, and I'm sure some of you can say, I think you're fallible. And I'd say, bless your heart, you might be right. Okay, that's what I believe. I think I'm right. Uh, number one. First setting, okay? As we look at the first setting, there was an immediate word that was given at that time in that culture. So when the word was spoken, let's just take one. Let's just take, um, for example, uh, there was any prophecy given by in, in Isaiah uh, that Christ would come, okay? The fulfillment of Christ and that Christ would come, and there's over 30 just in the book of Isaiah alone. There was an immediate understanding that there might be some relief coming from a type of Christ or a leader that would come and would give some relief to the nation of Israel if they would receive uh, the provisions that God had made. But the bigger prophecy was that of Christ who would come. And then ultimately the final prophecy would be that Christ's second coming that all would be made new. So you see, it's just as Abraham Heschel said, who was actually a Jewish theologian, he said, the Word of God cannot be contained in, simple, in simply an era. It is eternal. Its power is eternal. So there would be a message spoken, a prophecy given for that day, and because of the power and because of the authority of the Word of God, it would next come through the person of Christ or through some other means, and then there will be a final coming 
or fulfillment of that prophecy. Does that make sense? So when we look at prophecy, like a good example would be when you look at Matthew 23 and 24. A lot of times people get confused and they go, well, that was, was that before? Was that right then? Or is that coming? I, and I tell you, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Okay? Sometimes we try too hard to just pigeonhole and put God's Word in. I'm just going to look at it right here in this circle. But it is more powerful than simply our viewpoint. All right, as we continue here, uh, we see interpretation, which kind of moves into what we were just talking about. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And what does it always mean? Now, let's take a, let's take a very simple verse, and I'll give you an understanding of this. John 14:6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Those words spoken by Jesus, our Savior. Okay? Well, what, what did it mean right then? Well, if you take, take it for what it's worth right then, here's what you would understand. And if I was listening to it as Jesus spoke those words, well, the Roman government is in authority. They have basically put us under their rule. There are pagan gods everywhere. And even many of the Caesars demanded to be worshipped as deities. So as they heard that, as people heard Jesus speak that, He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. He was making a claim, so to speak, as a deity, that I am the way, I am the truth, it's not another. So there would have been direct understanding and consequences of who he was and the message that he was proclaiming. Now, that's what it meant right then. Well, what does it mean today? Well, it still means today this, that Jesus is the way. He's not one of the ways, he's not an option, he's the way, he's the truth and the life. So there's a message for us today. And guess what? That's a universal principle throughout all times. That truth stands firm. So as we look at interpretation, it's important for us to ask that question. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And what will it always mean? And then last, to sum up Scripture, what was the message that Jesus has come to proclaim? If we could sum it up uh, in two verses, He did that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 39. And what did He say? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Okay? So that's the first. That's the greatest commandment. It's the Shema given to us in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, 4. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Okay? And this is the first and the greatest commandment, Jesus said. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay? And upon all these, all the laws of the prophets hang upon these two commands. So Jesus sums it up for us right there. Then we come to creation. The third point, creation. Imago Dei. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in His own image. And in the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply in number. Alright, so we see in verse 26, you could even start in verse 26, and in verse 27, the Bible clearly tells us that we were made in the image of God. Now, I'm going to give you a crude, poor analogy. I just want to confess that to you right now, okay? It's a bad analogy, but I can't come up with a better one, so that's why you're getting this one, okay? Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, uh, if we want to be more specific, it's because we were made in the image and in the, in the essence of His personality, His morality, and His spirituality. Okay, so in other words, personality, first of all, we have emotions, we have intellect, we have affections. Secondly, morality, morality we know that there is a right and a wrong. We know what right and wrong typically is. And thirdly, 
that there's a part of us that survives even after death. Okay, There's the spirit that God has placed within each human being. So we are made in that image. But we're not uh, originals, so to speak. We're not God, okay? And we're not even gods in that sense. But it might be something like this. God has allowed us... You know, when I wrote this sermon, when I sat down and, and typed all this out, there was original I made, okay? And there, there's the original I can look at, and you could see it. And it was the original. What, if I wanted everybody to have a copy, what I could do is I could go out there, and I could get the copy machine, and I could run copies. And if I was doing it, some of them would be kind of slanted, you know, and our, our toner is usually not just right. And, uh, and there's an image there, but it's not the original, Okay, you couldn't use it necessarily as a legal document. It's not an original. You can tell there's uh, inadequacies. It's not as, uh, so to speak, as nice. It's not as good. Now that's a poor illustration because we are so vastly different and uh, further away from God than even that. But you can see that we were created in His image, that we might have fellowship with Him, that we might know Him by coming to Him through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus also gave us three institutions. Or excuse me, the Bible also gives us three institutions. Now, what are those three institutions? Well, first one is that of marriage. And we see that here in the book of Genesis. The covenant of marriage. And then Jesus uh, verifies this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. So the first institution is that of marriage. Marriage in the family. Okay? Uh, institution number two. We see it later on in Genesis. The institution of government. Okay, So we've got the institution of family, the institution of government, and then the thirdly, and we see in the New Testament, the institution of the church. Those are three biblical institutions that have been given to us. And so as we look at that, it's important for us to understand that God has created marriage and the family, uh, just as He has created the church, just as He has created the government. So these are important institutions that we must recognize. And then we see the covenants that are given to us. Covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. Now, there in the Old Testament, we've seen numerous covenants. But as we were talking about covenants in respect to salvation, we see the covenant, the Mount Sinai covenant, or the Mosaic covenant that was given in chapters Exodus 19 through 24, the Mosaic covenant, in which it was uh, pretty elaborately described how the nation of Israel would receive forgiveness and the sacrificial system which they would go through, and it was uh, noted as a blood covenant. It was sealed. And here's the covenant. And it was conditional upon the people receiving it and being obedient to it. But the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah that a new covenant would be given to us. In Jeremiah chapter 31, that is prophet said there will be a new covenant coming to us, and then we see it in Luke chapter 22. And if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Make that 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I did that last, last service. 2 Corinthians. 1, 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry. I purposely didn't read 2 Corinthians because I got confused last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll start with verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, there was an old covenant that was given to us in the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant. 
a blood covenant. Now there's a new covenant. The old covenant required the sacrifice of animals. The new covenant, Jesus Christ has come, and He's going to pay the price once and for all. His blood is going to seal the deal, so to speak, that anyone who would choose to believe in Him and transfer their trust from anything that they could do to what Christ has done on the cross through His death, burial, and resurrection, then they might receive salvation by receiving this gift. And it is given to us. The Bible tells us this is the cup and this is the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood because it's perfect, pure. There's no need for a second, third, fourth, fifth. Once and for all, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, do this whenever you drink, do it in remembrance of me. Now these are very important basics of the faith. But they don't mean anything if they're simply only head knowledge. Here's my question to you this morning. Have you ever received the grace of Christ? Have you ever transferred your trust from what you think, from what you know in your head, or from what you think ought to be right, to what Christ has done for you through His death, through His burial, and through His resurrection? That He has the power to forgive your sins, and Christ and Christ only can forgive those sins through the sacrifice that He has made, and that we simply come asking to receive of His grace.